Thanks very much, Vivian. Uh, if you're a JF age, if you're a sort of 11 to 14 year old, I haven't done a sheet for you today because I thought what with Romans 11 and me speaking, adding something else in to complicate your life might be a little bit too much. It is quite complicated, Romans 11, isn't it? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray the Lord has mercy on us all um, as we come to look at this chapter of the Bible together. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this letter written by the Apostle Paul, written about AD 57 to these churches in Rome. And we thank you that it teaches us of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus. It teaches us of a God who is merciful and compassionate. And so as we look at some ideas that might be a bit alien to us this morning, um, from a different time, a different culture, would you show them how they're absolutely vital to us today in Chessington and beyond? They're vital because they teach us of your character and of why we can trust you. And they teach us of your great plan of salvation and why today is here at all. So open our eyes to the truths from your word, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. I want to start by telling you a story about a friend of mine. Uh, Chris Nichol was a leader in the church I used to serve in, in Preston. Uh, He was uh, the church warden in the sort of late 70s, early 1980s. He, with his wife, Phyllis, had four children. And they brought their children up as Christians, as best they knew how, But very sadly, as the years went by, only one of their kids continued to follow the Lord Jesus. Three of them fell away, just weren't interested. Uh, Chris tragically had a massive stroke um, uh, that uh, disfigured him. And for a variety of reasons, he and Phyllis chose to go to another church. And I first met Chris after Phyllis had died, when he was brought along to our, our lunch club. And he was brought along by one of his sons, Steve. You could see Steve was there where he, he knew well, but he was nervous. He, he knew that actually this was a place that he was no longer comfortable in, even though people were friendly to him. Over the weeks, he used to bring uh, Chris to the old person's lunch club, and people got to know him and uh, chat to, to Steve. And eventually, a, a man in our church said to Steve, did you want to meet up for a coffee? So they got together for a coffee, and he said, did you fancy reading the, the Bible together maybe, to, to have a chat about some of the things you walked away from? And Steve said, sure. And so week by week, they began to meet up and read the Bible, and Steve came back to church. Uh, Sunday by Sunday, he'd come, and and his breath would be pretty potent. You see, Steve had had got as close to being an alcoholic without being one as you can be. Through a failed marriage and failed relationships, he was in a pretty low place. But but as he came back and he, he heard the Bible taught, he was reminded of the great love of God for him and the Lord Jesus Christ. And month by month, The alcohol became less important, and the Holy Spirit of God transformed his life so that today he's a wholehearted follower of Jesus. So uh, when I went back to All Saints a couple of weeks ago, there's Steve. But but not just Steve. Uh, There's his brother Mark, who who Steve's invited along, who has also started coming back to church and has started going to Steve's small little Bible study group. And there's his sister Gillian, who's Steve's invited along, so that all four kids, years after Chris has died and gone to be with the Lord, years after Phyllis has died and has gone to be with the Lord, there are all four kids back in the church they rejected, back with the Lord they walked away from. You see, Romans 11 primarily is about a gracious God whose heart is such that he does not give up on people. 
This isn't primarily a chapter just about Israel or the Jewish nation or what God is doing amongst non-Jews, Gentiles. It's about the very character of God. Do you see how Romans chapter 10 verse 21 ended? But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's the message that that Paul wants these Christians in Rome to hear about God. He's the God who holds out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. See, God's sovereign, in fact, he's ruling everything, grace, his undeserved loving kindness, God's sovereign grace never fails. It can't be stopped. He keeps his promises to his people. So primarily, this this chapter is about what God does in the face of human hard-heartedness. So if we want strength in persevering and sharing Jesus to a world that appears to reject him, then we need to understand the message of Romans 7. We've got a a group at CEC, the the PPP. How many three-letter things have we got at CEC? The PPP, the Parents' Prayer Partnership. They meet regularly to pray for their unbelieving children, children who aren't Christians. If they're going to keep praying, then this is the message of, of Romans 11 that they need to hear. Now, if you've not been here for a few weeks, the, 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 the question in Romans 9 to 11, in this great letter of the Apostle Paul, is this. Has God's word failed? In chapters 1 to 8, God has ex- Paul's explained how God's word is all about Jesus, all about forgiveness in him alone. But the problem is that God made promises to his Old Testament people, Israel, promises that all pointed to Jesus. But, but not all the Jews have followed him. In fact, most of them appear to have rejected him. So is it that God's word has failed? Well, in Romans 9, we saw the answer, no, it was never God's plan to save the whole nation of Israel. No, no, God sovereignly chose to bring people into relationship with himself because you're saved by his grace, his compassion on you, not by your nationality. Then last week in Romans chapter 10, we saw that it was faith in Jesus that made you right with God. The way that you came to be one of God's people was by trusting in his word about Jesus. And the the Jews, they'd heard that word about Jesus, but a lot of them had chosen to reject it. So so here's the next question that the Romans 11 faces. Well, is God going to keep his promises in the face of that rejection? What is is God going to do when people don't believe him? Is he just going to give up on them? And here's Paul's answer, chapter 11, verse 1. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. And here's the first thing we need to see this morning. God's sovereign grace never loses who he chooses. It's got a ring to it, that, hasn't it? God's sovereign grace never loses who he chooses. Two bits of evidence from the Apostle Paul. Verse 1 again, he says, look at me. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin kosher Jew, and I've become a committed Christian. What's more, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. And actually, here's another bit of evidence, says Paul. Look at the history of Israel, chapter 2, verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. See, God never loses those he chooses. 
Back in Elijah's day, uh, Israel had largely wholeheartedly rejected the Lord their God. Evil King Ahab was on the throne. But, but Elijah challenged the prophets of the idol, the false god Baal, to a competition on top of Mount Carmel. You might remember uh, the story. Uh, the prophets of Baal have a bull on an altar to sacrifice. Elijah has a bull on an altar to sacrifice. Prophets of Baal get to go first. They dance around the altar. They cut themselves. They plead with Baal. They scream and nothing happens. Elijah baits them. Perhaps Baal's having a kip. Then Water's poured on Elijah's altar. He says, pour more water on. It's totally soaked. He prays a little prayer. Boof. The Lord sends down fire. The whole thing, including the stones, disappears in smoke and flame. You think Elijah at that stage would be going, yes, nailed it. I mean, it's his biggest evangelistic campaign victory ever. Why is he so glum? Well, because he, he's gone from that high, that mountaintop victory, and he's gone to have a chat with his biggest pastoral problem, uh, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, queen of Baal worship. And Jezebel sends a message to Elijah. So Jezebel sent a message saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. That's the, the priests of Baal who were killed. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. Mountaintop victory? Terrible challenge, and Elijah's miserable. And he goes to the Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only faithful one left, Lord. And do you see what God says, verse 4? And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Oh, Elijah, you think there's only one of you? You think I'm only keeping my promises to you? (laughs) No, I've got 7,000. God never loses those who he chooses. God's grace is is more than abundant. He's got a a remnant. And and Paul says that's the same today. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. A remnant probably much bigger than you realize of people who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Jewish nation. And why? Verse 6, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, that's my free, undeserved, loving kindness. I choose who I choose, and I do not lose them. And there are many more than you know about. Elijah, many more, probably even the Apostle Paul knows about. Certainly many more than we know about today. See, God's sovereign grace is bigger than people's sin. That's why God's people are never defined by being in a particular race or belonging to a particular group or a particular church. They're never defined by an outward sign like circumcision in the Old Testament or baptism in the New Testament. God's people are never defined by being more morally upright or being a bit nicer than other people. They're never defined by having a Bible or even by possessing vast Bible knowledge. None of those things defines God's people. God's people are always defined by his gracious choice. He chooses them and brings them to himself. And God never loses the people he chooses. And that should be great news to us. Because it would be easy to feel hopeless like Elijah, can't it? To say, well, what's going on, Lord? I mean, I mean, you said this good news about Jesus was supposed to change people's lives, and we're sharing it. And frankly, I can't see many lives being changed. 
I mean, the, the kids at Fusion, they're, they're fun in the games. They'll do anything for a sweetie, but they're not rocking and rolling with Jesus universally, and sometimes they just kick off. The Christianity Explore course, we're holding it in the Arton Lounge. We could hold it in a broom cupboard. Or the morning service, there's sudden revival, and then everyone goes on holiday next week. But God saves who he saves because he chooses them by grace. It's, it's not the, the intensity of our efforts that gets people to follow Jesus. It's only his sovereign grace. And nothing can change that. And that's great news because God's grace is much bigger than our efforts. His plan is much bigger than our time scale. And he will keep working despite our feelings of despair or defeat or battle or struggle. His grace is always ready to burst out of our expectations. Oh, Lord, there's only me. No, Elijah, there's 7,000. One to 7,000. That's not a bad proportion increase, is it? That's why we can keep praying for our unbelieving children. That's why we keep sharing Jesus with them. Because God's sovereign grace is bigger than their sin. I can't promise you that they will be saved. Uh, But I do know a God who says that he's the sort of God who holds out his hands all day long to obstinate and disobedient people. That's the sort of Father in heaven we have. This Father's Day, your Father in heaven, is the one who holds out his hands all day long to obstinate and disobedient people. A father whose grace always triumphs in the face of hard hearts. But that doesn't mean that the people rejecting Jesus isn't serious. Oh, it's very serious to reject the good news about Jesus. Did you see what Paul says about the, the Jews who, who've rejected the good news about Jesus? Verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought earnestly to obtain, the elect among them, the chosen that is among them, did, but others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. Paul takes two Old Testament quotes, and he he makes a serious point that that if you're here and, and you're rejecting Jesus, God will give you over to the path you choose. He'll let you have what you want. If you harden your heart to his love, he will be hardening your heart to his love as well. He confirms that hardness in you. If you look at that, that second quote from Psalm 69 in verses 9 and 10, quote from King David, the words of God's chosen king, he, he speaks of judgment on his own people. They seem to offer little hope for, for Israel. Verse 10, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. Oh yeah, God never loses those who he chooses. But, but don't think that means that you can go on spiritual cruise control, that you can harden your heart to him. No, if you reject him, that's very serious. Don't presume there's a way back. Which forms another question from Paul. Look at verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. So if we've seen God's sovereign safe, grace means he never loses who he chooses. We're going to now see God's sovereign grace brings beautiful humility. But, but Paul's answer as to God's plan, as to what he's doing with Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, is a pretty high-density explanation. This is like 16-and-a-half-ounce T-bone steak theology. This is not a side salad in the middle of Romans 11, so we're going to take it reasonably slowly. Okay, here we go. Have a look at the second half of verse 11 with me. 
Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Do you see the three stages? Uh, The Jewish people reject Jesus. That drives the message of God's saving love in Christ all over the world to the Gentiles. The Jews see the life of the Christian and they become envious of what they have. And so that they come in and trust in Jesus themselves and there's a wonderful fulfillment of God's promises to them. That's the pattern all the way through this section. Oh, we actually see it in the New Testament, don't we? It's Jewish religious leaders who reject Jesus and have him crucified. But we know as Jesus is raised up on the cross to die for our sin, that's where he draws people from all over the world to experience God's love and forgiveness through him. We see it in the book of Acts. Paul first goes to the synagogue to explain the good news of Jesus to the Jews, but when they reject that, he gets driven out into the marketplace and the squares and takes the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. You see, God's grace is so vast that his plan is to use his people's rejection, their hard-heartedness, to save the world. You have to be extraordinarily powerful, don't you, to, to use those who oppose you for your purposes. But that's what God is doing. And if God can, can save people from all over the world through the rejection of the Jewish people, just think what he's going to do through Jewish people coming to trust in Jesus. And in fact, Paul says, that's what drives me on in explaining the good news. Do you see that in verse 13? I'm talking to you Gentiles in as much as I'm apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. It's a, it's a sort of divine version of uh, chatting to that bloke you don't really like, so your boyfriend gets jealous and pays the attention to you that you really deserve. That, that's what the Apostle Paul says that I'm doing. I'm going to the Gentiles so that they come to know Jesus, so that the Jewish people see how great Jesus is and, and turn to follow him. And so Paul says in verse 15, for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the Jews rejecting Jesus brought God's message of being reconciled to him through the cross to everyone, well, when Jews come to trust in Jesus, then we see true spiritual life from the dead. It might be that Paul is thinking that just before Jesus returns to judge the world, there will be a a large-scale number of Jews who come to trust Jesus as the Messiah. It might be simply that he's saying that we see the promises of God most specially fulfilled when Jewish people see how Jesus is their Messiah. Because what he does in verses 16 to 20 is is really to humble us who don't have Jewish origins, to, to remind us that that we were born on the wrong side of the track, and yet God in his mercy has given us the promises he gave to his people. He uses an agricultural illustration. He talks about an olive tree. He makes the point in in verse 16 that the quality of the tree depends on where its roots are. Uh, The quality of the fruit depends on the, the branches. 
And therefore, for us here today, pretty much all of us, not from a Jewish background, trusting in the promises of God, those promises are are rooted in the Old Testament given to the Jewish people. Uh, The fruit you see in our lives is bursting out from the promises that God gave to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so Paul says that that we shouldn't be arrogant or or think we're better than them. Look how he puts it in verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, a little uh, little bit of a gardening tip here. I've got a little picture for you. If you're not into propagation and grafting, this is the day to be here. Okay, so what it is to be grafted in, here, here's a, a, an olive branch that's been cut off. And you take then a, a branch of a, another plant um, and uh, another olive tree, and you carefully attach it and bind it into a cut in that original olive tree. And then it begins to grow in and draws on the sap from the uh, healthy olive branch, and you get new olives coming out of the, the, the branch as it draws up sap from the roots. And Paul says, you non-Jewish people, well, what God's done is he, he might have cut off a branch of people who've rejected him. He might have taken you, you wild olive branch, and put you into his cultivated olive tree, his people. But remember where your sap comes from. Remember where the roots are. You've been bound in. They're not your promises by right. They weren't spoken to your nation no, you're hugely privileged. Don't start thinking that you're, you're better than the Jewish people because, because I've come to trust in Jesus. No, that's only a gift of God's grace. He, he's bound you in. Just remember, all you have is a gift from him. And don't think that it, it's going to be hard for him to, to bring natural branches back into his people. And it'll be easy for God, easier for him to bring Jews to trust the promises that they've had all through their lives than to bring you non-Jews into his people. Jesus was a Jew. He was the Jewish Messiah. He fulfilled the Jewish law. Don't think in some way that being a Christian makes you an inherently better person because of who you are than being a Jew. The only difference is that you have faith in Christ. Uh, Look how he puts it in verse 20. Granted, they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. You see, the fact that God's Old Testament people, the Jews, can receive his promises and then reject him shouldn't make us think, well, aren't we better than them? I mean, we've trusted them. It should make us tremble. It should make us fearful that, that we would do the same thing. We actually should take that as a warning, verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Don't forget, everything you have is because of God's kindness and grace to you. Verse 22, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue his kindness, otherwise you'll also be cut off. Now, that's Paul's application. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've got to remember that your trust in Jesus is not about you. It's about God's kindness to you. 
the kindness of a stern God who by nature judges people who reject him. And the only thing that that makes a difference between you and anyone else is that he has lavished his kindness and love upon you. And so that's why we've got, we've got to turn from any sense of self-righteousness, any sense of superiority, any sense that we're, we're better than anyone else. No, no, we've just had a God who's been kind to us. Did you see the repeated theme in the section? Verse 18, he says to them, do not boast. Verse 20, he says, do not be arrogant. Verse 25, so you may not become conceited. You see, he's rubbing in. You're hugely privileged. You're so privileged. Don't lose sight of that. But because there is probably no greater danger in in the Christian life in following Jesus than presuming on God's grace. What does that look like? It's when we start to be quicker to spot the faults in other people than we see them in ourselves. Faults in their doctrine and faults in their lifestyle. We're quicker to put others down than to build them up. And we don't daily feel, here, here I, I, I desperately need Jesus. My, my relationship with God is only because I, I trust in Jesus. Uh, today, if I didn't have faith in Jesus, I'd be hopelessly lost. When that ceases to be our conscious experience, at least once every 24 hours, then we're in danger of presuming upon the grace of God. And that's what Paul's talking about here. We should tremble before God amazed that he loves us, an outsider by nature, grafted into promises that are not ours by right. And I think that's the heartbeat of of the deeply attractive church that, that Paul says will draw other people in, draw the Jewish people in. A church that's so sold out on God's gracious love in Jesus that, that it has a tangible humility that, that, that loves others, not looks down upon them. That, that forgives one another because they see their own faults. You see, the sort of church, the sort of Christian that melts hearts that are hardened to the message of Jesus Christ is a church of soft-hearted people who know they totally depend on God's kindness. And that's what we long for people to experience at, at the big day out. To come into a, a group of people who, who are tangibly humble because they know they're loved through no good of their own. That's what we long for. It's also what we, we long for, for Jewish people to see amongst us, because I think this passage does tell us that, that as Christians, we should long to see and share the gospel with those who are Jews, to see Jewish people saved. That, that must be a priority for us. It was a priority for the Apostle Paul. Right from the start, he said the gospel goes to first of the Jew and then to the Gentile. Because in the end, what's going to be the end result? Look look at verse 24 with me. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own tree? Look, says Paul, it's loads easier for God to to put a, a, a natural branch back into the original tree And that's what he's going to do. He is going to bring Jews to trust in the promises of God seen in Jesus the Messiah. Because here's the third thing. God's sovereign grace will save all his people. Look at verse 25 with me. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not become conceited. 
Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. God, remember, hardened the Jews, so the message goes out to the Gentiles till they, non-Jews, have accepted Jesus and become Christians. And then, verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Now, Romans eleven twenty six is one of those verses that lots of Christians have disagreed about. What does it mean that all Israel will be saved? Well, it can't mean that all Jews will be saved by being Jewish, because all the way through, Paul has talked about sharing the good news of Jesus with Jews. He wouldn't need to do that if they were saved by being Jewish. It can't mean that the whole nation state of Israel will become Christians, because, well, from chapter 9 onwards, Paul's made very clear God always chose people even from among the Israelites. Not all them trusted his promises. It might mean when Paul's talking about all Israel, he's using a a term that covers all Gentile and all Jewish Christians. That that seems to be what he says in chapter 9. But that doesn't quite fit with the, the context here. I think most likely it's this, that before Jesus comes back to judge, All the Jews that God wants to bring to trust in Jesus will trust in him. Whether that happens in a sort of more intense event just before Jesus returns to judge the world, or whether that's just happening all the time now as people seek to share the Messiah with the Jewish nation. God's not going to lose any of his people, either from the Gentiles, the non-Jews, or for the Jews. That's the nature of his persistent grace. And so Paul says in verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. So the good news about Jesus goes to the world. I've used the Jews, but in terms of my chosen people, they still have God's promises given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I don't keep my promises. I do keep my promises, rather. I will bring them in. And so verse 29, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. You see, when God calls you, he calls you. And he doesn't give up on you. He doesn't give up on his word of promise. We've got a Brexit. I've said it's going on. We've got a Tory leadership contest. And I guess the reason that a lot of people are fed up with this is that we don't actually believe most of the promises that have been made. Uh, We just see them not pulled off again and again. And to be fair, there are probably two reasons why people can't pull off, politicians can't pull off promises. One, they, they, they just don't care, their character isn't up to it. Or two, they're just not able to do it, they're not powerful enough. But but Paul says, no, God's promises are utterly trustworthy. His character is one of persistent love. He is gracious and he never loses who he chooses. And his ability in history is that he even uses the rejection of people to take his good news to the world so that he will save everyone he wants. And therefore, Paul can say in verse 32, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. See, the heart of God's plan is the merciful heart of God. It's God's nature to order the world so people are saved by his mercy. No one can possibly think they've done anything to deserve a relationship with their loving Heavenly Father. All they are is disobedient, 
whether they're Gentiles who never knew his promises from childhood or Jews who knew his promises and have rejected him. All people that come to relationship with God do only because of his mercy. You need mercy. I need mercy. Without mercy, everyone is lost. Disobedient and deserving punishment. Mercy is the only door back into a relationship with God. It flows out of his character, and it's a door only he can open. And that should move us to worship, whatever our background, whoever we are. Because lastly, God's sovereign grace is for his glory. Now that's what happens at the end, isn't it? Those are the verses that Gareth took us to in our kids' spot. Paul bursts out into praise because he realizes that there's nothing that happens in our world that is, that is good, that is not the result of God's mercy and love towards me. Why does God not reject his people, though they're faithless? Well, because he is glorious in mercy. Why does God order history so he has to have mercy on Jew and Gentile for his glory? You see, right from the start of the Bible, the, the, the devil's lie has been that the, the world is better and people are better off if we live for our own glory. So uh, in Genesis 3, the devil convinces Eve that God's a spoil sport and she's better off running her own life. And from then on, people have thought that the world is best if it runs round them. Like a, like a seven-year-old at, at their own birthday party, we think that paradise is a universe where we're the center of attention. But it's not. You might not think that par- you, you, you run life for your own glory, but let me just give you an illustration of that. When you are stuck in a traffic jam, are you part of the problem? Or is everyone else the problem? Because if everyone else is the problem, that's a world run for your glory. How dare they use the road when you want to use the road? This is my world, and it's not operating the way I want it. That's our own heart. We think the world is run for our glory. But the great news is it's not. It centers around the glory of God. And he is loving when we are rebellious. And he is persistent when we are faithless. And he is merciful when we are disobedient. And he chooses us when we reject him. And he keeps his promises when we don't keep ours. And he will bring all people in that he chooses from Jew and Gentile according to his plan that he's working out in the whole of history. And so Paul comes to this this song at the end and and basing it on, on Isaiah 40 and Job 41, two chapters of the Bible that, that basically are about how enormous God is compared to us. He, he says, who knows everything that God's planned? No one. Who's ever given God advice? No one. Who's ever helped God out when he's been caught short? No one. He gives us everything we have. As John Stott writes, we are not God's counselor, he is ours. We are not God's creditor, he is ours. And that's because we are not God's creator, he is ours. And so when a group of Christians gathered in 1646 to write the Westminster Catechism, they outlined the heart of the Christian faith. The first question that they had, what is the chief end of man and women? But they were in the 17th century, so they didn't think like that. What is the chief end of people? People's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so much of our heartache and our frustration comes from the fact that that we struggle to accept this extraordinary plan of salvation that Paul has outlined in Romans 
1 to 11, that the purpose of the world is not that you and I feel good about ourselves day by day, but it's we see how good and glorious God is. The purpose of the world is not that we get our own way, but we enjoy seeing God work out His ways amongst us. The purpose of the world is not that we can love ourselves, but we know that we're loved by God through Christ despite ourselves that we see that all that there is is for his glory, and we burst out in praise, as the Apostle Paul does. Why is Romans 11 such good news? Oh, it's complicated. Oh, yes, it has gardening and Jewish and Gentile people in it, but primarily it's good news because it sticks on the throne of the universe, a loving Heavenly Father who gives his own Son for us, and brings that to bear upon our hearts by the power of his Spirit, and says, I will not give up on working out my plan for my people. I never lose who I choose, and therefore worship me. That is why Romans 11 is such good news. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, there are many things in this passage that we'll still struggle with. Maybe things that we have questions about. Please help us to wrestle with them. But most of all, please help us to see who you are and what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. And to see the goodness of your character. To have a humility before you that recognizes that We have nothing that we were not given and that we might consider your kindness day by day. And in doing that, we might be people of a a beauty that makes others envious that they don't know our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.